You ready? I was born ready. Welcome to the Advisory Opinions Podcast. I'm David French with Sarah Isker, and we've got three main topics to cover for you today. So we're going to talk about a sort of a last lingering issue and a question, an intelligent question that was asked about the Yeshiva University case that we touched upon uh, on Tuesday. Uh, a, A very good question from a listener that requires some additional discussion. We're going to talk about the special master hearing that was conducted yesterday in the Trump Mar-a-Lago search case that was very interesting, uh, including a little aside about Texas has weighed in, and we're not sure why. Well, no, we're pretty sure why, right, Sarah? Yeah, yeah, I think we got the why. But like, we got the why. Legally, why? Legally, why? is different from politically why. And then we're going to talk a bit about old Martha's Vineyard from a legal standpoint, including a class action lawsuit filed against Governor DeSantis by a couple, no, three of the um, migrants from Venezuela and uh, as class representatives. So we're going to, we're going to break that down just a bit. So that's a pretty healthy podcast. So Sarah, let's let's start with the Yeshiva slash Bob Jones. And do you have the question in front of you? Yes. So Bill, one of our members in the comment section, and by the way, any of you are welcome to join the comment section as for dispatch members. And you can just go to thedispatch.com. Uh, Bill said, how does Bob Jones versus United States not get invoked here? Yeshiva is a tax-exempt university. Well, there's a... A couple of reasons. One, because nobody has tried to threaten uh, yeshiva's tax exemption, and which is a very important element to this, because the way the Bob Jones case worked was that there was an IRS initiative to uh, revoke Bob Jones' tax exempt status because of its racially discriminatory policies. So this is something that originated with the IRS saying. Uh, you can't be a 501c3 and have explicit racially discriminatory policies. That a 501c3 is just not something that is given to anyone who asks. There has to be a you know a specific charitable purpose for the organization. And that if you're talking about a racially discriminatory organization, then that racially discrim- discriminatory organization isn't really a charitable organization. And so This was a really contentious issue that was a furtherance of um, controversy surrounding so-called segregation academies, uh, Sarah. So what happened if you're looking at the the history of uh, segregation and integration in the American South is that after the Brown v. Board of Education desegregation order, uh, a number of quote-unquote Christian academies were formed uh, around the South. And these Christian academies were created for the very specific purpose of avoiding desegregation orders. So this is where white kids could go to school and have no black classmates. And so these segregation academies sprung up all across the South. Um, Now, if you go 
uh, if you're familiar with Christian education now, I would say only a pretty small minority of Christian colleges in the South, uh, Christian schools in the South, I'm sorry, date all the way back to that segregation academy era. But there's still a number of Christian schools in the South that date back to that segregation academy. So there was an IRS initiative to say, sort of say, wait a minute, um, these segregation academies are abusing the 501c3 uh, designation. What they're really trying to do is maintain segregation. Um, that's their principal purpose. Their principal purpose isn't Christian education. It's maintaining segregation. This is an abuse of 501c3 status. And actually, Sarah, not to get too deep into the weeds here, but it's actually super fascinating, interesting, contentious history. Because there are folks who argue that the actual birth of the moral majority and the religious right in the United States is centered around the defense of, quote, religious liberty through the defense of segregation academies. And uh, there is something there, but not as much as people say. Uh, say more. In other words, Okay, I shall say more. I actually wrote an entire Sunday French press about this issue a long time ago, and we'll put it in the show notes. But essentially, it is absolutely true that there were individuals who were deeply concerned about the IRS effort against these segregation academies, and that they were highly organized, and that there was a, an intense effort to center the defense of segregation academies around religious liberty. Now, the problem with this sort of as the origin story of the religious right is that even those people who were interested in the segregation academy question knew that they didn't have, the defense of the segregation academies didn't have mass appeal. So in other words, you weren't going to motivate millions upon millions of people to go to the polls to defend um, about to defend these segregation academies. So while there was some initial organization around the defense of segregation academies, that that was not the overriding motivation of the foundation of the religious right. And we'll put that in the show notes. But that was my my conclusion, my argument in my Sunday French press some time ago. So anyway, um, these segregation academies included uh, K through twelve and they also included uh, Christian colleges that may have predated the uh, Brown v. Board of Education decision, but had legacy racist policies. Bob Jones was one of those universities. So the IRS threat to uh, tax exemption wound its way up through the courts all the way up till the early years of the Reagan administration, in which the case was ultimately decided. The case was ultimately decided in. 1983, and the Supreme Court, by an 8-1 margin, with only Chief Justice Rehnquist in dissent. So this is, but this is an definitely an older court. Berger, Brennan, White, Marshall, Blackman, Powell, Stevens, and O'Connor are the eight. Rehnquist was the one in dissent. Uh, ratified the decision to revoke the tax exempt status of Bob Jones, a university, and another Christian school, which was a secondary school called Goldsboro Christian School. Um, now, Sarah, this will come as no surprise to you. I'm old enough to remember all of this. Whoa. So, yes. No. Yes. Nobody's that so, old. 
<laughs> Nobody's with the Queen of England's old. passing. Nobody is that old, <laughs> and nobody. Now, to be fair, yeah, you were like 10. I was fourteen. Okay, fourteen when it's decided. But in this microscopically small religious liberty bar that still exists, that existed in 1991 when I went to law school, it was still a very hot topic in the religious liberty bar as to whether this was. The beginning of a real uh, of a, the weaponization of 501c3 status, or a case that was confined to its facts, best sort of viewed in the badges and incidents of slavery category. In other words, that the post Civil War, more than century long post Civil War effort to eliminate the badges and incidents of slavery from American life, that is really fit into that category. And and time has demonstrated that really the badges and incidents of slavery sort of analysis of Bob Jones is the governing analysis, that this was not the opening salvo in an effort by the IRS to apply a political litmus test or a religious litmus test to 501c3 uh, cate uh, categorization. And the evidence of that is you just haven't seen that occur since. And there isn't any indication of a judicial appetite for that to occur. Although the existence of Bob Jones has been used by a number of people to say, but what about if you're going to revoke tax exemption on the basis of race, what about on the basis of sex? Or what about the basis of sexual orientation? Or what about on the basis of gender identity? And this sort of looms out there in the religious conservative world, like the sword of Damocles in many people's uh, eyes, that it's just hover, it's just right there. And in fact, I believe it was Alito who asked about this in the Obergefell oral argument, and the Obama Solicitor General uh, said, didn't say, no, we're not going to do anything about tax exemptions, but just kind of punted on it, which really raised a lot of alarm bells. But the sh that's a super long answer with some history to it attached to a pretty short but astute question which is that, well, number one, the C3 status of yeshiva is not an issue here. Tax exemption status has not been held, aside from the Bob Jones and Goldsboro case, to really federal tax exemption to give uh, the government an opportunity to dictate the uh, theological religious practices of religious institutions. And that really isn't on the legal horizon at this point. So A, uh, we should have talked about Bob Jones. It was like a good question and like, yep, we, uh, good point, Bill. Um, yes, good question, Bill. Thank you. I also think the Bob Jones line of thought is interesting because we've talked about zombie precedents before precedents that lurk out there mm -hmm. that the current court wouldn't decide, but they're not really looking to overturn it either because that causes waves. And so it just like hovers out there. Bob Jones isn't a zombie precedent in that respect. It is, however, in my view, pretty much held to its facts. And almost by the words in the opinion, it's been limited to its facts. I just want to read um, the, the money line, if you will. So to back up just a little, you're right. I mean, obviously David's right about the tax exempt status, um, but they do look at this through a first amendment lens and they apply strict scrutiny 
um, because there's no question this is implicating Bob Jones's First Amendment rights. Um, but they find in the very rare case that the government has overcome that strict scrutiny barrier. Strict in theory, fatal in fact. Ah, ha, ha, ha. No, but a flesh wound. Uh, so here's the quote. Government has a fundamental overriding interest in eradicating racial discrimination in education, which substantially outweighs whatever burden denial of tax benefit places on the university's exercise of their religious beliefs. Um, so there's a few things here that I think are worth pulling apart. A, you still apply strict scrutiny. B, like you said, David, the badges and incidents of slavery, it's what's helping this overcome it, not general discrimination. And lastly, and this is the part that I find very interesting, you know, on the would this get decided the same way today? Certainly wouldn't be A1. I'll put it that to you that way. But um, uh, you notice here it says, which substantially outweighs whatever burden denial of tax benefits places on the university's exercise of their religious beliefs. So it is still the case that that court never questioned the sincerity of the religious beliefs, something that courts, us, everyone's struggling with now of like, yeah, but what if the religious beliefs are total BS? Even back then on something that, I mean, I'm not going to call those religious beliefs BS, but like, uh, can I? Okay, great. That would be great. Yes. BS. Thank you. Yeah. Yes, okay. BS. The yeah. court is not saying, we've looked at your belig- religious beliefs, we've checked out, you know, the Bible and some Old Testament, some New Testament, and it's just not there, man, and mainstream Christians don't believe this, and that's why it overcomes your religious beliefs. They're basically saying, nope, we're going to take everything you said about your religious beliefs as fact, mm-hmm. and then we're going to look at the government's interest, and not the government's interest in preventing discrimination, by the way. Yeah. It's the government's interest in giving a tax benefit to an organization that promotes discrimination. And I think that's really key when you're looking at yeshiva and the tax-exempt part. On the one hand, I think that Bob Jones is a relevant precedent and one we should have talked about. On the other hand, it's quite different from saying you will have a government taxpayer-funded benefit. Taxpayer-funded is weird because it's like you just don't pay taxes. It's not like you get money. But on the other hand, like everyone else owes the money, y'all get it. Just Whatever. call it a tax I'm benefit. I'm going to call it. Right. I think it's a tax benefit. Mm-hmm. I think you are getting money in a sense. Uh, that's very anti-libertarian of me. Um, <laughs> it is. Uh, but it, very different from that benefit analysis to we're simply going to make you do this. That's where I think you see the strict scrutiny uh, balances shift pretty dramatically. Yeah. And that's why the tax benefit status makes Bob Jones a relevant precedent, but why it didn't, why we didn't talk about it the first time. Yeah, right. Exactly. There's a big difference between saying you can keep your policy, but you can't keep your tax benefit versus saying you can't keep your policy. Now, one note is that the court in Bob Jones was, they limit it to its facts, sort of, mm-hmm. certainly it was limited to racial discrimination just by the whole opinion. And it was limited, quote, only with religious schools, not with churches or other purely religious institutions, which is very interesting and, of course, has been uh, meaningful moving forward. And it's why, David, that's the part 
that I find difficult to square with current precedent mm-hmm. in a sense. And some of these uh, employment discrimination cases, stuff like that. Is there really some bright line between religious schools and religious institutions? Because now the court's saying that there's not a bright line when it comes to employment discrimination. But Bob Jones says that there is a legal distinction. Uh, Well, and especially since, and I don't know if you followed this, Sarah, a number of religious institutions are now reclassifying themselves as churches. Right. Even though they're not churches. Guys, What's a church? You're not churches. They know they're not churches. <laughs> a lot of the yeshiva case turned around whether their charter listed them as a religious institution, which is sort of a the most formalistic joke that I've ever seen. You're wondering whether yeshiva is a religious institution, and you, and you need to look it up on a piece of paper. Right? <laughs> surely, surely not, court. But that's sort of what they hung some of that opinion on. Um, anyway, overall fascinating case. I think Bob Jones is a fascinating case, especially when you think about the current court. And it does, I will tell you, it does show how far the current court has moved to the more conservative side. I don't want to say right, because that implies almost a political, like a partisan valence to it. And that's not what I mean. People can argue that that's also the case, but it's not what I mean here. I mean, legally conservative, where there's just an extra weight on the side of religious organizations, religious freedom. I mean, you've talked about this plenty, David, that like religious liberty has skyrocketed since 1983. And I look at the makeup of that court, like you said, Berger, Brennan, White, Marshall, Blackman, Stevens, O'Connor. Boy, look at the current makeup of that court and do sort of that one-to-one analysis of who's replacing who on religious liberty. And yeah, I think... I don't know if Bob Jones comes out differently, but the reasoning would look different. Yeah. Um, and there'd be, uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist would not have been so lonely in his dissent. Yeah, I, I have had a long, because I've, I supported the Bob Jones. He was not the Chief Justice there then, by the way, just he was an Associate Justice, about to be. About to be. So I have had a long running discussion with some of my religious liberty comrades over Bob Jones and going all the way back to law Ooh. school. I was like, no, this is the cool. this is the right decision. This is the right decision. If if there exists a compelling governmental interest, it's going to be rooted in the issue that almost destroyed the United States of America. <laughs> like such a good point. And did y'all have such a um also debate? This is like the <laughs> the name that shall not be spoken. It's like saying Macbeth um at a theater. Uh Brown v. Board. Yeah, you know, that that's one of those late night dorm room conversations in a lot of law yeah. schools. Uh, yeah. Is Brown v. Board. And, you know, again, a number, you know, this is folks were all over the map on it. You know, my view on it was Brown v. Board was a equal protection case, flat out equal protection case. Um, obviously came out the right way, probably best analyzed, uh, best analyzed purely through that equal protection lens. But... Yeah, I think that, you know, if you're talking about uh, equal protection of the law, if you're talking about privileges or immunities, my goodness, you know, the and then this is one of the areas where a lot of people criticized Brown for really emphasizing the sort of the facts of the case about how factually uh, the, the segregated schools were, had such broadly disparate quality um, and said that the real violation wasn't the separate, it was the equal. 
Um, whereas I think what Brown does is it very forcefully argues that separate cannot be equal, that separate does not mean equal. And, and so I thought that, that that's a very compelling uh, analysis that, that by its very nature, that separate can't be equal. So I thought that would... Brown, I bring it up because Brown is another case that would be written so much differently today, but absolutely comes out the same way. Absolutely. Same outcome. Um, and to your point, David, I love the way you just put that. What can be a more compelling governmental interest than the very thing that not just almost tore the country apart, it did tear the country apart. Tear, did tear it. Um, it was mended back together through amendments. And uh, is it fully mended? I mean, like, so I, I really like the way you, you phrase that. Um, anyway, great question. And one of the ways it was mended was by throwing black Americans under the bus for a century uh, post-Reconstruction. So, yeah, yeah. No, and it, one other thing about this church issue, because I just have a bee in my bonnet about that. I'm picturing you with a bonnet. <laughs> I know. Have I used that mic twice already today? Be in my, uh, anyway. Uh, FRC, Family Research Council, which is a... Um, conservative family policy activist organization has uh, obtained church status. Well, essentially that it's an association of churches um, that essentially, what does this mean? If you attain church status, what it does is it shields you from having to file a 990. So a 990 is this document and anyone who's listening in the nonprofit world knows, and this is something I became acquainted with when I was president of fire back in the day and what it does is it, it requires certain disclosures about donors and it requires, critically, Sarah, certain disclosures about salaries. And so it will dis you're required to disclose high earners in your organization. And how can I put this? <laughs> That's embarrassing information for some large Christian nonprofits. And... How shall I also put this? If people knew how much money some leading figures in American Christendom are making in their capacities as leading figures in American Christendom, a lot of decisions that are made about protecting status and privilege would start to make even more sense than they already make. And so... One is when you're seeing these institutions um, reaching for church status, one of the first things that you should think is, huh, what is it that they are not wanting to be transparent about? And one of those things is quite often money, salaries that are paid to leading figures uh, many of these organizations, which are funded by small dollar donations, often by people on fixed incomes who are, quite frankly, scared to death by the fundraising tactics of these organizations and are funneling large sums of money collectively and sometimes large sums of money compared to their own personal budgets to pay very handsome salaries to a small group of individuals who then turn around and use some of that money to scare them into paying for more pay increases. But um, that's a little bit of cynicism coming through. <laughs> that, 
was quite the bee stuck in your bonnet. Did it escape? That's quite a bee. Yeah. That might be a hornet. Mm. That might be a hornet. Mm. Yeah. All right. Lots more to get through. Yes. Lots more. Okay. Special master. Woo. Uh, exciting things afoot. So a few things to hit here. One, we have the 11th Circuit Appeal. The Trump team has filed their brief pretty much as expected. Uh, the one thing that's sort of worth an interesting note is the Trump team arguing that you can't appeal this to the 11th Circuit um, because it is you can't appeal a special master order. It's just not one of those interlocutory appeal decisions. Fascinating. Um, we will get to more of that as this gets fully briefed at the 11th Circuit, but I could see that being a, a meaningful point. Second up was an amicus brief from the state of Texas, <laughs> it, just siding with Trump. Like, it, David, it was pretty weird. I mean, as you said at the beginning of this, like, we know... Why? But to be an amicus, a friend of the court, you have to have an interest in the case. Like, hey, we're weighing in here because we something. <laughs> and let me read you some of what they said was their interest in the case. Um, Throughout this litigation, the Biden administration has attempted to trade on the reputation of the Department of Justice and the intelligence community to thwart the appointment of a neutral special master. The district court twice rejected that gambit, and this court should too. Amiki states have been frequent litigants against the Biden administration, and they offer this amicus brief to highlight how the administration's conduct in connection with this case is of a piece with the gamesmanship and other questionable conduct that have become the hallmarks of its litigating, policymaking, and public relations efforts. At a minimum, this court should view the administration's assertions of good faith, neutrality, and objectivity through jaundiced eyes. Consequently, this court should reject the administration's request to stay the district court's order pending appeal um, and instead permit this dispute to proceed before a special master. Again, I just haven't seen something like this, David, where it's like, hey, weighing in here because we also litigate against these guys and they suck. <laughs> yeah. We have yeah. no interest in the merits, facts, or anything else of this case, but boy, do we dislike those guys. And that's what the whole brief is. I mean, that's what the whole brief is. Oh, it is an airing of litigation grievances. Uh, number one, take the administration's resort to procedural gamesmanship to overcome adverse judicial decisions. And they go through the migrant protections protocol case. The Biden administration appealed that final judgment, but just two business days before oral argument in the Fifth Circuit, it issued two new memoranda purporting to supersede the already vacated ones. Hours later, it filed a 26-page motion arguing that the case was moot and that the administration was entitled to vacature of the district court's order, the precise remedy it had hoped to obtain on appeal. I, I hear, I actually do, and I'm somewhat sympathetic because we have seen this in other cases of, um, for instance, that original New York gun case, David, mm -hmm. where they get themselves a, a mootness. <laughs> Like they lose and then they withdraw the law and they're like, well, let's not go to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court's like, yeah, I guess so. 
but that's not, by the way, the Biden administration. That was state government. <laughs> and that's a super common litigation tactic, by the way. And it's a super common <laughs> litigation tactic to try to fix the problem that has caused the litigation. That's what this was, the, um, the two new memorandum that were superseding these old memoranda. Yep, the old memoranda were found to be unlawful. So they were like, okay, we'll try new memoranda that we hope are lawful. That's, I don't know, I see why one sees that as gamesmanship, but also <laughs> that's kind of what we want in our litigation system. We want people to try to fix the problems. We want them to settle where they can. Um, so yeah, it, airing of grievances. And fascinating, David, lots of states signed on to this, of course. Of course. Yeah, let me, let me read you some. These are all the attorneys general. Florida, Indiana, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, Missouri, Montana, South Carolina, Utah. And then, of course, respectfully submitted by the Attorney General of Texas. I mean, this brief is hilarious. Um, They're upset that the Biden administration was emailing social media companies about alleged disinformation around the pandemic. They're uh, upset that the Biden administration has said that they didn't fund gain-of-function research. Um, they're upset that Kamala Harris said the southern border is secure. That's literally listed here. I don't. It's literally listed. I don't understand why that's legally relevant to whether Donald Trump should have a special master appointed to review the eleven thousand document. What? What? It literally, it says. <laughs> and just last week, Vice President Kamala Harris. By the way. Vice president is hyphenated in this. Is that a thing? I don't know. I'm fascinated. I don't think so. Um, yeah. Last week, Vice President Kamala Harris, in a nationally televised interview on Meet the Press, asserted that the United States' southern border is secure. Yet the facts gathered by her own administration are decidedly contrary to this puzzling statement. Last year, Customs and Border Patrol recorded 1.7 million illegal crossings, a level not seen since the 1960s. And this year, legal border crossings are all but certain to surpass 2 million. The end. That's the end of that. <laughs> what? Why? Why did I just read that? What does that have to do with anything? It doesn't even say why that's um, anything. Like gamesmanship. Like why they that why that means I don't. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> very strange. Well, that's all a sideshow and yes. a very amusing sideshow, but a sideshow nonetheless. Well, it's politically relevant. When we think yes. about 2024, when we think about the Trump's legacy within the Republican Party, and for that matter, it's trickling down into the legal conservative movement. Yes. And this is now going to be example number one that I have. But yes, the special master actually held his first hearing. And David, just right off the bat, can I tell you something that I find really strange about this? Yes, please do. You could have been appointed special master, by which I mean, you know, you're a person out there in the world and you would convene the parties at your house or over Zoom and like, mm -hmm. you know, like make a plan with the parties. The special master who happened to be appointed is a sitting judge in the Eastern District of New York. Yeah. And what this overwhelmingly felt like is that for no legal judicial reason, this entire case has been transferred to the Eastern District of New York. Right. 
Yeah. This was like a court hearing. He referred to himself as the court. And this would come relevant and may become relevant, by the way, because you, David, can't hold anyone in contempt. Contempt of what? Contempt of David? (laughs) No, I hold many people in contempt, (laughs) Sarah. But can the judge on the Eastern District of New York hold people in contempt, even though he's acting as a special master, but he is a federal judge? And uh, again, I I fear this might become relevant based on some of the merits of what was here. Um, Also, a side note to the merits, you were supposed to be able to call into this hearing. They set up an Eastern District of New York phone line piped in so that everyone could hear everything. And it turned into, it it descended into actual Lord of the Flies. But like, (laughs) Lord of the Flies looks way more organized. Proving something, by the way, about how a few people can just ruin any public space. Maybe, David, it's it's particularly meaningful to me because of the social media lawsuit that we talked about last week. Yeah. Earlier this week. It's like, yep, this is what happens when you can't moderate a platform. There's people, you know, the clerk would come on and ask everyone to mute their phones really nicely, which should have been quickly realized was not the problem here. It's not that they didn't know how to mute the phones. Is that they wanted to troll the whole thing. And at one point, someone says, um, I don't want an explicit rating on this, but two of the three words are, are potty words. Um, <laughs> F-U-B. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Like, so that's what's going on in this call. And this isn't for three minutes. Um, I had one friend dial in every 10 minutes, and it never got better. Uh, so they're going to need to figure that out if we're going to do this. But thankfully... Josh Gerstein of Politico, and perhaps you might recognize that name because he's the one who broke the story about the leaked Dobbs draft. He made his way up to EDNY, David, and he was sitting Mm -hmm. there giving us the play-by-play. One issue in dispute that's fascinating. Is it properly before Judge Cannon, that's the Florida judge who appointed the special master, or should it have been brought first to Judge Reinhardt who issued the search warrant? Special Master Deary has flagged this as a potential question in the fight. Again, not actually a question for the Special Master. Yeah. Definitely a question for a judge. Yeah. Definitely a question for the 11th Circuit, for instance, potentially. Uh, Fascinating. It's also interesting, this judge, just a little few biographical details. This judge is a Reagan appointee. Um, He's 78 years old. He's also a veteran, I believe, of the FISA court. So this is a judge who is A, extremely experienced, B, uh, experienced in handling of classified information, and C, how should we put this, Sarah? The FISA court is not known for being incredibly skeptical of state classification. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. It's kind of underpins their entire existence. Right, right. Right. So anyway, uh, it, it keep going about the hearing. It's a weird, it was a weird choice. And remember, this was the Trump team's pick. Right. I still haven't figured out why. I can totally see why the DOJ said, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's do this. Judge yeah. Deary, let's go. Yeah. Um, so other notes from Josh Gerstein's reporting. Uh, Judge Deary seems to brush back Trump team by saying that, quote, litigation strategy isn't going to affect his resolution of recommendations to Judge Cannon. Uh, 
seemingly and almost certainly referring to the Trump team pushing back on the idea that they will discuss whether they have any argument that the documents in question are have been declassified. They said that they shouldn't have to do that because that um, would be a defense at trial, which is, by the way, whoa. Mm-hmm. <laughs> whoa. Mm-hmm. We're at a special master stage. But anyway, even if that's true, says Judge Deary, um, Honey Badger don't care in this case because it's not relevant to his special master role in sort of sorting these documents. The only thing that could be relevant, if you want to make an argument that those documents aren't classified for some reason, feel free. And I may put them in a different bucket of papers. But if you're, if you have no argument that you want to present at this point, so be it moving on. So that's where that got left pretty much. Yeah, there was a real, he, and what was his actual quote? You can't have your cake and eat it. In other words, you can't sort of raise as the specter of declassification without producing any a evidence or declassif- of declassification or in, even any specification, regardless of evidence of which documents have been declassified. Or even say that you would argue, right? There, there has still never been someone from the Trump team stand up in court and say, we believe these arguments are declassified. We're unwilling to present you evidence of that right now. That has not happened. Right, which is extraordinary, by the way, considering the extent to which it has permeated much of the right-wing public that these documents are all declassified. This was a preliminary hearing, so we don't have decisions from the judge, by the way. And and so I say this withholding judgment until we get some of those decisions to see what his reasoning is, where he falls on some of this stuff. But boy, he was just not pulling punches here. Um, He's asking what his role would be about the marked classified documents. How am I going to verify the classification? What business is it of the court? By the way, that's where he refers to himself as the court. And I was like, oh, Mm -hmm. of the special master, but okay. Habit, he's 78. Yeah, fair enough. (laughs) And so the Trump lawyer says simply that he stands by the position that they don't want to detail what may have been declassified or when. We're not in a position, nor should we be in a position at this juncture, to fully disclose a substantive defense. It's not gamesmanship. It's about not having seen the documents. <laughs> and then he goes off against the National Archives, calls it highly politicized, goes talks about Sandy Berger stuffing things into his underwear. <laughs> and Judge Deary says that's a broad brush, but that he doesn't have plans to talk to the National Archives right now, and he'll let them know if, he, if that changes. Um, Overall, fascinating. Two things, David. One, the classification stuff and the Trump team unwilling to even put forward the argument that these documents might be declassified. Two, they feel like this is all moving a little too fast. Yes. (laughs) They'd like to slow this train down. Yes. Uh, Judge Deary starts by saying, like, we're going to move, you know, with all, he had a nice phrase, but fast. Yeah. And the Trump team's like, well, now look at those beautiful flowers we should give them a smell and sir you know you don't need to be jogging here a a nice stroll would be fine yep big tap the brakes energy going on but the problem is from the judge's perspective you're not talking about a large number of documents i mean this is not like rolling into enron (laughs) and seizing tractor trailers full of documents this is 
a relatively un small universe of documents. And here's the other thing, and just sort of putting on my litigator hat, I'm Trump's attorney. I come in and I've not seen, if you're talking about his litigation counsel right now, they probably hadn't seen the documents that were taken. They okay. don't know what was taken. How would they know what is taken? They're going to have to ask their client. So they're going to say- certainly not going to know 11,000 documents or even the 100 classified documents. Let's be realistic. Yeah, he's he might remember seven or eight or nine sure. of the 100 classified documents. But when it comes to what are the actual contents of these 100 documents, um, guarantee you he didn't have some sort of itemized list. He didn't have an index on a Google Doc. None of that stuff. And so they're saying, okay, what was taken? They don't know. And the government is saying, we, I mean, they are going to get to see the 10,900, certainly. The government is, I guess, digitizing them right now. But there's still some dispute over that 100 because the government's argument was there's still some DOJ lawyers who haven't gotten, who did not get to review the contents of those documents because they're so highly classified. And... Uh, trustees number two, I don't know if she says number two, but another lawyer on the Trump team um, does not have her, her, uh, you know, clearance yet. And so he was asking yeah. for that to be expedited. And the government's sort of like, uh, okay, but like, let's, let's make real sure. Qualify. I know. Fascinating. Also, an another funny thing where the judge actually did side with the Trump team in this hearing on one not important point, but maybe telling point. So they have to pick a vendor um, to digitize all these documents, I guess. And the government says they are ready to pick a vendor by tomorrow. The Trump team says that he wants until Friday. The judge initially says, great, we'll do it tomorrow. But then eventually he says, okay, Friday. Mm -hmm. Now that's a, that's two extra days. Not a big delay. Hours. Yeah. I'm going to give you this before I drop the hammer, but. But yeah. I actually think it goes to his want for speed and at the same time, reasonableness. 48 right. hours is, it, it may be a tactic, like every little delay helps, but 48 hours to actually review vendors, you know, okay. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But I, you know, I just am placing myself a lot of times when you, when you have people doing legal analysis no one places themselves in the position of the lawyers. And, <laughs> you know, the lawyers are, in, Trump's lawyers are in a real box here because if they say, well, of the 100 documents, 73 are declassified. Well, what have you just said? 27 are not. So you're in a box right there. Well, you're also in a box because I guarantee you they don't know what the documents are. They're also in a box because I guarantee you there is not one scintilla of a paper trail of declassification. And what they're wanting to avoid at all costs right now is some sort of definitive statement or definitive declaration that there was no declassification. So it's all holding action. It's all delaying action. It's all, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you're just trying to live another day is essentially the, the mode that they're in right now. And the government, uh, so at one point, Judge Deary asked the, the DOJ side, what should he be doing with these classified documents if the 11th Circuit doesn't step in? And the government says, um, we will most likely consider other appellate options at that point. 
I'm just laughing because there's only one, one. appellate yes. option. <laughs> <laughs> now, yeah. like, could they go on bonk, I guess? But I think the judge here is actually contemplating that the 11th Circuit does nothing, not that they simply rule against them. Anyway, it was a funny exchange. Yeah. And Josh Gerstein sort of dryly notes, I think only option is SCOTUS. <laughs> Josh, not a lawyer, but ever the wit. Yes. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, it remains to be seen how, how he, uh, you know, what he determines here remains to be seen if you're going to have appellate intervention here. But um, that is not speaking as somebody who's been in hearings that did not go the way I wanted. If you're Trump's team, that is not what they wanted uh, when they went into that hearing. But again, we'll see what it, what ends up happening. Time flies, Sarah. Time yeah. flies. We okay. haven't even gotten to the migrant issue. Yeah, class action lawsuit. Fascinating. Yes. Um, this is interesting. Uh, I said this on Dispatch Live, but one of the funny things that I saw online was uh, after this class action lawsuit was filed, and really soon after the migrants landed, you had these press conferences being held by attorneys for the migrants that were incredibly like compelling, polished uh, accounts from, you know, from their perspective, from their perspective um, about what occurred. And someone said, well, this is what happens when you dump uh, migrants on Lawyer Island. It was a nice bit of humor in an otherwise fraught situation. Yeah. But yeah, calling Martha's Vineyard Lawyer Island, I think is what I will refer to it from now on. I've never been, have you? <laughs> I have never been. I've, I've watched TV been. shows about it. I know people who have been, but that's about my experience with Martha's Vineyard. Oh, you know what? I have. In January of 1992, <laughs> we had a... And I remember it because we had... No, January cold? of 1993. I remember it because we had a law school Christian fellowship retreat. It was freezing. And that may or may not be the event that led me to ask a roommate of mine or to declare to a roommate, a roommate of mine, I don't know how a single pilgrim lived. So, yeah, true. freezing. Anyway. In fairness, I, um, from law school, drove to the Cape in May. It was freezing. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I was like, I want to see Cape Cod. And I was like, oh, my God, this is so cold. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. The complaint itself, I'm, I'm really curious about your views on the complaint itself. It tells a, 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 fact, a story of the facts that is, um, if you've been following this closely, none of it is really surprising that essentially what occurred is that you had um, migrants coming from Venezuela to Texas, okay, not to Florida. This is really important because sort of, you know, uh, in talking to some of my friends who are not super you know, following all the twists and turns of everything, have said, well, I see why DeSantis would want to get migrants out of Florida that aren't supposed to be here. No, these were in Texas, uh, recruited in Texas. And the allegation is they were uh, promised, uh, they were given certain inducements. There's a reference to a brochure uh, talking about refugee resettlement programs, which it's very important to understand. This was not, these these migrants were not here under refugee resettlement. There is a there are different programs that, and different categories of migrants. Refugee resettlement is its own thing. People who enter 
the United States from another country and request asylum are not refugees under a refugee resettlement program. That's a really important thing to indicate. So the essential argument is they're, they're in Texas. They were given McDonald's gift cards as one of the elements of the complaint that they were sort of uh, wooed to go to uh, Massachusetts. They did not know they were going to Martha's Vineyard, didn't know where they were going, um, being told that they were going to receive benefits that are part of refugee resettlement. They're not eligible for any of those benefits, brought on the plans on false pretenses, thrown, flown to Martha's Vineyard. And then, um, so all of that is pretty, these allegations are pretty well known. And Sarah, I don't know, have, have you seen any definitive refutation of those allegations from the DeSantis camp? I, I haven't seen any. It doesn't mean that it hasn't happened. I haven't seen any. Uh, he did answer some questions at a press conference this week in which uh, high level sort of political um, argument that he didn't hear any of this pushback when the Biden administration was putting migrants on planes and flying them late at night to, you know, destinations, which is all true. Um, and then notes that all of this is getting attention because it was Martha's Vineyard. Uh, that's true, but maybe not for the reasons he thinks. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I have talked about this a little bit before on the other podcast. Um, but Politically, this was a huge win for DeSantis. His name is in the news every single day right now in a position in which conservatives, he is against the Biden administration, and so conservatives feel defensive of him. And so yeah. it's upping his name ID in a, I'm fighting against the Biden administration posture. That's perfect for him. And the details and even how this lawsuit comes out doesn't matter. If anything, it helps because it will keep his name top of the headlines repeatedly. Um, and that's not to pass any judgment on either the law or the moral side of this, but simply politically, I haven't seen any downside yet. Yeah. I mean, the, I, I would agree with you. I mean, not even sort of the, the San Antonio, uh, was it a Bexar County sheriff? Am I saying that correct, Texan, Sarah? Oh God, Bexar, is that what you just said? I didn't even know what you were talking about. Behar. <laughs> Spelled Bexar. B-E-X-A-R. Yeah. Okay. Did you not take Spanish at any point? Never. Okay, well then that is a pretty good excuse. Do you take French? <laughs> what did you take? What do you speak? I took French. I was a French minor in college. And is it I because of your last of name? Yes, entirely, which is... <laughs> Which is the dumbest thing in the world. So here I am, a young high schooler, and you had to, you had to take a foreign language, and my two choices were French or Spanish. And had I taken Spanish, that could actually be useful here in the United States of America in the year of our Lord, 2022, when podcasting about a county spelled B-E-X-A-R. Whatever. But instead I go, my name is David French. <laughs> I'm going to take French. Anyway. So likely. Okay, so... Mm -hmm. I am not an expert on class actions, David, and so I have no thoughts on the class action-y part of this and whether they have mm -hmm. met the necessary qualifications to bring a class action lawsuit instead of simply bringing a lawsuit on behalf of these three uh, potential plaintiffs and one minor, I believe, as well. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you yeah, do. Yeah, I don't. I don't really either. It's a small class. 
Right. I mean, the largest the class can be is 50 people. Yeah. Um, but class actions are a whole other thing that that isn't really that relevant because regardless, they certainly have standing on behalf of um, yeah. the the plaintiffs. Now there's an organization as well that sued claiming that they're sort of the only organization that provides charitable resources to people in this exact position. Uh, I don't know. But this lawsuit will move forward because they've got three people who were on the plane. Yeah. Um, it runs through the facts, as you say, David, and we haven't seen refutation of that. It doesn't really matter for these preliminary um, hurdles that it'll have to jump through because we assume all their facts to be true for our sort of initial look at this. The causes of action, though, were pretty fascinating to me. First of all, there's a million. Yes, it's they threw causes of action on this case like croutons on a salad. <laughs> uh, first cause of action, violation of Fourth and Fourteenth Amendment, illegal seizure, false arrest. Now, defendants acted under color of state law under 1983. Yes. Mm -hmm. The Fourth Amendment protects individuals from unreasonable seizure. Yes. Yes. By fraudulently inducing individual plaintiffs to cross state lines, defendants unreasonably seized plaintiffs without just cause. Um, hmm. <laughs> Going to need to show your work there. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that there isn't case law on this point. That's right. And so, but the next one is what gets me. Particularly after the individual plaintiffs had boarded the airplanes and were mid-air, Plaintiffs were not free to leave and were induced into that condition through false promises and misrepresentation. This constitutes a governmental termination of plaintiffs' freedom of movement. Mm. This actually runs into the second cause, which is a substantive due process claim under 1983 that they were deprived of liberty without due process of law. Defendants robbed individual plaintiffs' liberty in the most basic sense, denying them freedom of movement without just cause, by putting them on the airplane. Um, the airplane part of this is not persuasive to me whatsoever. No, no, no. The fact that you're, not, you're on an airplane and not a bus, where you could, in theory, say, stop the bus, I want to get off. Which is purely theoretical, because the fraud continued until they landed. So nobody wanted to get off the plane. Mm-hmm. I, again, when you think about the Fourth Amendment, you think about like custodial, like, were you free to leave? I get that when you're on a plane, you're not free to leave. But they got on the plane through fraud is what alleged here. But it's not then that being on the plane um, violated anything. They weren't asked questions. They were simply being transported from one place to another voluntarily, but for the fraud, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Uh, equal protection claim that they were targeted because of their race and or national origin. Uh, I would say it was their status, not race right. or national origin. Because if you were illegal, if you were a, if you were here on a, from Venezuela on a student visa, you wouldn't be on that plane. Correct. And we're not. Mm -hmm. um, then several other sort of 1983 related clauses. Um, I'm now on the 6th, still 1983, 7th, 1985, conspiracy to deprive someone of their civil rights, number eight, oh, violation of the American Rescue Plan Act, Coronavirus State Fiscal Recovery Act, fun, another, now we have common law, 
False imprisonment for number nine. Number 10 is fraud and deceit. Number 11, intentional affliction of emotional distress. Number 12, negligent infliction of emotional distress. So David, I think the fraud claim is good based on that pamphlet. Yeah, I think that to me, this stands or falls on the fraud issue. That, that's yep. what it stands or falls on. It, all of the rest is noise and all of the rest is, are croutons. The, <laughs> croutons. the salad is the fraud allegation. Um, and, and the question is, you know, what, what, are the, what are the actual statutes? What are the actual remedies available? And it is the fraud allegation that, quite frankly, separates this from some of the Ducey, Abbott, um, and Biden. You know, the transportation of migrants from one state to another, not only there's, is there nothing wrong with that, there's a lot right with that yes. to sort of say, no, wait, migrants shouldn't be clustered in these distressed communities on the border. A rational national policy of absorbing migrants says, we're going to take them from place from hyper-concentration, places of hyper-concentration to other communities that can absorb them. And if migrants are told this is what's happening, it's pursuant to a national plan, a, preferably even the Abbott stuff, where if they're actually truthfully told where they're going and they're given a chance to say yes or no, all of that is far better than just flat out lying to folks. And if you just flat out lie to folks, you got a problem. And I don't understand why they created this brochure. And by the way, they the allegation is that they themselves made and printed this brochure. Yeah. Why? You didn't need to. Surely no you could have you found 50 people and said, hey, we've got a plane. It'll take you up north. There's this place, you know, it's called Martha's Vineyard. Um, you know, we think they'll have jobs up there, at least more than here. We're feeling pretty overwhelmed. You're telling me you couldn't find 50 people that way? Yeah, we're going to take 50 of you, drop you in one of the wealthiest communities in the United States, and there's going to be a lot of nice people there to take care of you and help find you shelter in another place. They could have gotten 50 people who had no place to go. I mean, my gosh, they'd come to the United States of America without any assurances whatsoever. Right. You can still give them McDonald's gift cards. That's not a problem. I don't know why that is fraud. I get the like inducement to get on the plane, but to your point, David... Nothing wrong with inducing people to get on a plane. You just can't commit fraud. Right. And, you know, the other thing about this, and again, I, you know, from the political standpoint, um, DeSantis has now had days on Fox, um, you know, making all of his points. And from a political standpoint, this is likely to redound to his benefit. But from a, from every other standpoint, my gosh, these are, this is this is a stunt with a capital S. I mean, you're talking about chartering planes. You're talking about taking migrants who are not from not in Florida through the use of Florida state funds and sending them to Martha's Vineyard to get on Tucker. That's the whole reason. I mean, there at least with Abbott, you can say we have too many migrants in Texas, and he's got a point. He has a tremendous point. These border towns are being overrun. Who, who can look at that and say, oh, that's fine. Everything's good. Nobody can look at that. And so Abbott has a point. Now, does Abbott execute on his point in the way that he should? We can argue about that. But Abbott's got a point. Ron DeSantis has no point in taking 50 migrants from Texas 
and putting them in Martha's Vineyard. This is all about the Tucker hit, all about it's a troll. It's it's a troll is what it is. And but that's not legally relevant. If it it is not. If, it, if again, if he had done everything by the book and did it so that he could get on Tucker every night. Yeah. No legal problem there. Or else you could exactly. argue that like everything a president does is so he can up his approval numbers. Like, duh. <laughs> right. Politician got a politician. Right. Right. No, the 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 legal issue here centers around the fraud. And, you know, there I've seen some questions raised about Florida appropriations. Uh, I, I would say this about my ability to assess Florida, the law of Florida appropriations. You know how we give malpractice warnings? That would be a malpractice guarantee. <laughs> if I tried to argue and talk about Florida appropriations, I'd just go ahead and guarantee you, listeners, it would be malpractice. Uh, so I've seen that talked about a lot online. The other thing I saw floating around in the first few hours was basically the illegal transportation of um, illegal aliens in the country. They're like, if you take illegal aliens across state lines, furthering their status, you know, blah, blah, blah. And like basically human smuggling. And they're like, aha, DeSantis committed human smuggling. You will notice that's not in this complaint, by the way. Yeah. Nothing about that because it has to be in furtherance of, you have to be trying to help the person stay an illegal alien. These people had already turned themselves into authorities. No. And that was some bad legal takes on Twitter and elsewhere, almost exclusively from non-lawyers. And it really, I get it. Someone was wrong on the internet and it's bothering me, but like it does when people are, are telling tens of thousands of people like, aha, it's a crime. We found them like, and then people lose faith in the justice system and the rule of law because Ron DeSantis didn't get arrested for smuggling aliens. Ron DeSantis is not a coyote. No. I would, I, can I recommend that people follow the Twitter account, Bad Legal Takes? It is pretty fun, actually. It's really actually good, and, and, and it's good on two ways. One, I haven't seen them mislabel a good take as a bad take. Nope. Like, they tr- tend to pretty much Even take, politically unpopular takes. Exactly, and that was my other point. Number one, they, they seem to be pretty accurate. And number two, even if everyone on Twitter is loving the take, um, they're not afraid to gore a lot of oxes. So. Um, it's a pretty educational account, actually. At least you can have education by subtraction that at least you know what ain't right. Now, if you're not on Twitter, please don't get on Twitter to follow bad legal takes. Keep your mental health in check by staying off the sewage platform. David and I are on there for you. Not often, but I'm, I'm on there. I think according to list, uh, reader surveys, now all of our readers are not also all listeners. So if you're a listener right. and you're not a reader, shame on you. <laughs> you need to read as well. But uh, about 70% of our readers are not on Twitter, which could be one of the reasons why our dispatch comment community is one of the healthiest on mm. the internet. It really is. Yeah. So Here's some assignments for uh, dispatch, or here's an assignment for dispatch uh, listener. I mean, for advisory opinions listeners. How dare you, David? I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm so, that's, let's just leave that in as a, as a badge of shame. Yes. Uh, yeah. So advisory opinions listeners. I am curious if we have any class action legal uh, lawyer listeners, and I'm sure that we do. 
and who are members and can comment. Um, how small of a class is too small of a class for certification? So David, I said, you know, we're not class action experts, but let me run through federal rule 23A, just so okay. everyone understands the factors. Again, I'm not an expert on these factors, okay. or how they've actually applied in real cases in real life, but I can read rule 23A. Um, here are the factors. One, the class must be so numerous that joinder of all members is impracticable. Two, there must be questions of law or fact common to the class. Three, the claims of the representative parties must be typical of the claims of the class. And four, the representative parties will fairly and adequately protect the interests of the class. So uh, there's no question on number two, David. There must be questions of law or fact common to the class. You have three people who are on the plane. All 50 on the plane have the exact same claims. The only distinction would be like, maybe some people didn't get the pamphlet. Some did, right. or some people got a different thing, like maybe, but more than likely at the point that you're on a plane together, you're probably passing around the pamphlet anyway. Number two factor, absolutely met. Typical of the claims of the class, that's sort of the same as number two in this case, I think. Whether the representative parties will fairly and adequately protect the interests of the class, I think they will meet that. They have resources. They have, you know, a good complaint here that Common certainly has counsel, lots yeah. of, yeah, lots of croutons. So David, Number one, the question you just asked, I think is the most relevant question. So numerous that joinder of all members is impracticable. I do have one case citation here where a case found that at least 40 members was enough. Here we have 50. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. But I think there's a second part to this. So numerous, they're not that numerous. 50 is a relatively small number but joinder of all members is impracticable. At this point, that is probably true. These are people who do not, who Could are going to be, be yeah. difficult to get in touch if they've with. scattered. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, that, that is my sort of more detailed question to our class action experts. What are sort of the factors under factor number one? Is it the numerous or is it the impracticable? Good. That's a good narrowing of that question. All right, Sarah, do you have anything else? Oh, Oh, correction about the, the corgis. Oh, a corgi correction. Okay, does this make King Charles III look a little bit better? It does. I don't know. It doesn't matter. So, um, A, it turns out that the corgis were a gift to the queen from Prince Andrew and uh, Fergie. A, I don't know that that cuts either way. Like, people can give you presents and you don't just get to give back the present to that person. That's not necessarily in the best interest of the dog. Two, um, it turns out that Andrew and Fergie do live together still. Didn't know that. Did not know that. Yeah. Three, Prince or King Charles is not going to live in Windsor Castle. So actually, they weren't going to stay in Windsor no matter what. Okay. <laughs> uh, and four, he already has dogs. And so maybe it's not great to like mix the dogs. I don't know. And are the dogs King Charles Spaniels? Because that would be amazing. <laughs> I didn't even know there's a breed called King Charles Spaniel. What? I know. Sorry. What, David? I know. Useless. N never anyway, heard of it. Uh, you know, AO strives for accuracy in all things. And while I don't think I said anything necessarily inaccurate, certainly did not include a full picture of the future life of the two corgis. So for that, I absolutely apologize. Well, we appreciate the clarification. Yeah. All right. Well, we will be back next week. And with the pace of 
legal developments in the United States of America. Oh, and I did should say that next our next advisory opinions recording is going to be a live podcast at the University of Michigan. So if you're a University of Michigan listener, uh, law school listener, um, please come by. It's going to be recorded at lunch on Monday uh, at the University of Michigan Law School. And we are looking forward to going into Ann Arbor in September, late September. I'm especially looking forward because it is going to be 96 degrees today in Nashville, Tennessee. Woof, spicy. Which is an, absur- it's an absurdity. So I'm looking forward to Ann Arbor in late September. So we'll, we'll see you there to some of our Advisory Opinions listeners or at the University of Michigan Law School. And to everyone else, we'll, uh, you'll hear from us uh, next Tuesday. And until then, please rate us, please subscribe, and please check out thedispatch.com. So now I've screwed it all up.